These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Once upon a time, there was a man who was a member of the United States House of Representatives and a good friend of the president. He discovered that his beautiful wife, who was much younger than himself, was having an affair with a friend. The thing was, before and during his marriage, he had many affairs himself, even with prostitutes. But when his wife took another lover, it was more than he could handle. He was crushed. He didn't deal with it all that well. Today I have the story of a man called an American scoundrel, Daniel Sickles, on the 208th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic that I would like to know more about, and then I put it into a hopefully engaging story, or that's the idea at least. Now, I'd like to thank the Fries, Nancy and Gordon, for filling in last episode. I couldn't do an episode myself because I was at my dad's 90th birthday party. Yeah, my father is 90 years old and still aware of what's going on, which is good. I had a very good time with my family and all that kind of stuff. Now, if you haven't listened to episode 207 yet, I would definitely recommend it. If you think the times we are living in now are unique, with our current occupant in the White House, listen to Outsider Presidents. You'll learn that strange things like this have happened before. And again, thanks to Nancy and Gordon, I love the episode. And speaking of that, today's episode was recommended by Nancy Fry, so again, thanks Nancy. You know, I've got to get the Fry's back to do more episodes. I learn so much every time they do one. I think uh, we're planning to have them back to do an episode or two in December. We'll see how that works out. So today I'm talking about a man named Daniel Sickles. He was a very unique man, to say the least. His life was so eventful that I'm going to divide this into two parts. The first part today is about the time he murdered a man in cold blood, in broad daylight. And then in my next episode, I'll talk about his time as a general in the American Civil War. And yes, he was a general in the Civil War after he had killed a man in broad daylight. Oops, in a way, I guess that was a spoiler. So let's get to it. The story of passion and murder in the 1800s. So what we're going to talk about tonight is Dan Sickles. And old Dan Sickles, if you don't know anything about Dan Sickles, you're in for a heck of a ride. Okay, because Dan Sickles is definitely somebody that is beyond... uh, He just... He just just defies description, all right? He just... He just... You know, he just... It's truly, you know, it's out of a straight out of a movie or something. There have been quite a few books written about the man Daniel Sickles. One of the most popular is called American Scoundrel, The Life of the Notorious Civil War General Dan Sickles by Thomas Keneally. I think the book title sums up Dan pretty well. He lived a long life, 94 years, although much of that was without his right leg. 
There are a lot of Dan Sickle stories I could tell, but the one I'm going to talk about today is the one of an incident, a murder that happened in the fall of 1852. In broad daylight, Daniel Sickles shot the son of the Star Spangled Banner author Francis Scott Key. Not only would he be found not guilty, but he would go on to be a general in the American Civil War. Daniel Edgar Sickles has been described as sophisticated and eloquent. He was intellectually gifted and a skillful lawyer. Yet he was impulsive and was known to break out in fits of anger. The men he called friends trusted and loved him and swore by his loyalty, discretion, and effectiveness. But Dan did as he pleased, rarely letting laws or rules get in the way of what he wanted. He was also a big-time womanizer. He was born on October 20, 1819 in New York City to a wealthy family. His parents were Susan Marsh Sickles and George Garrett Sickles. His father was a patent lawyer and a politician who was known for getting what he wanted. He passed on that trait to his son. Early in his life, Sickles learned the printer trade before studying at the University of the City of New York and learned law at the offices of Benjamin Butler. He was admitted to the bar in 1849 and elected as a member of the New York State Assembly in 1847. Early in his life, he was accused of stealing, embezzling, and mortgage fraud. With that resume, there was only one career path for Dan, and that was politics. He became a Tammany Hall Democrat. Dan was also a frequent guest at a discreet, high-class brothel owned by Fanny White. He was Fanny's man. Now in the 19th century, prostitutes commonly had a man or friend whom they developed a romantic relationship with. The man wouldn't be required to pay for services, but usually, like in Sickles' case, showered the lady with gifts such as jewelry. Sickles didn't try to keep his relationship with Fanny secret. He took her to a visit at the state assembly chamber for which he was criticized by the Whigs. In another story, for a night out on the town, Fanny dressed as a man, and the two ended up in jail. At the age of 32, Sickles married 15-year-old Teresa Baggioli on September 27, 1852. The union was against the wishes of both his parents and hers, mostly due to the age difference. Teresa was the daughter of a wealthy and well-known Italian singing teacher, Antonio Baggioli. She was an intelligent woman who spoke five languages. Sickles had known her ever since she was a child, but as she grew into a beautiful woman, he fell in love with her. Of course, the marriage angered Fanny White. After hearing about it, the legend goes, she followed him to a hotel and attacked him with a riding whip. A good friend of Sickles was James Buchanan, the man who would become the 15th President of the United States. In 1953, Buchanan was the 20th United States Minister to the United Kingdom. He appointed Sickles the first secretary to the United States Legion in London. The story goes that when Sickles traveled to London, he left his very young wife and daughter in New York because his daughter wasn't old enough to travel. Instead, he took prostitute Fanny White. It's even said that he introduced the woman to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert at Buckingham Palace as Miss Julia Bennett of New York. By 1958, Dan was in Washington, D.C., having been elected as a New York Democrat congressman. He lived in a boarding house while 21-year-old Teresa and their 6-year-old daughter lived in New York. Philip Barton Key was a 39-year-old lawyer. He was called the most handsome man in Washington. He served as U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. His wife, Ellen, who he deeply loved and had four children with, 
had recently died after eight years of marriage. He was lost, looking for someone he could love just as much. Yet, like Sickles, he was a womanizer. He was six feet tall, with large blue eyes, abundant sandy hair, and a mustache. He was also the son of American lawyer, author, and amateur poet Francis Scott Key. Francis, of course, wrote the poem Defense of Fort McHenry, which, when put to the tune of the popular drinking song, To Anacharian in Heaven, it became the Star-Spangled Banner. Sickles' friend James Buchanan was inaugurated as president on March 4, 1857. Dan and his wife were invited to the inauguration party. Teresa traveled by train from New York to attend. That was the night that Teresa met Philip Barton Key. Barton Key and Sickles were becoming good friends. Key even asked Sickles for help. Key feared that his job as U.S. attorney would be in jeopardy now that there was a new president. Later, Dan would talk to his friend, the president, about keeping Barton Key on. The next summer, when Dan returned to Washington from New York, he rented a home in Lafayette Square for his family. He wanted Teresa and his daughter to be with him. It was a beautiful mansion which could be seen from the White House. It cost per year his whole congressional salary, and on top of that, he hired servants. Out of help with the negotiations on the lease, he asked for help from his new friend, District Attorney Barton Key. The Sickles were very active in social circles, holding reception, balls, and dinners in their home. Their house became a frequent place for dinners and parties, with most of Washington's elite attending. Barton Keys would always appear, some thought a little too often. Some of the Washington women began to joke that he seemed to be following the young Teresa around. Dan Sickles, who was frequently away on business, depended on an 18-year-old man named Henry Watterson to escort Teresa to dinners and dances. When he became unavailable, it was Barton Key who took over the task. But as 1857 began to turn to winter, Teresa and Key began spending more time together. More time than seemed appropriate. People began to notice that the relationship between Key and Teresa was moving well beyond that of just friends. Whispers and gossip were constant about the couple. One of the first to take notice was a colleague of Sickles, John B. Haskin. Dan had asked Haskin to check on Teresa once in a while to see if she needed anything. Haskins and his wife caught the couple, Barton Key and Teresa, in what was considered an improper situation, making a salad while drinking champagne. Later, when Haskins and his wife boarded a coach, she turned to her husband and said, Mrs. Sickles is a bad woman. Barton, Key, and Teresa were seen together constantly, walking around, horse riding, and such. It was apparent to everybody, probably in Washington, D.C., except Dan Sickles, that they were more than acquaintances. When a friend of Sickles told Dan of his suspicions, Dan confronted Key. But Barton Key assured Sickles that it was just idle gossip and nothing was going on. He, of course, lied, but Dan believed every word. Key even rented a house in a black neighborhood to carry on the affair. Key would arrive at the home and tie a string to the shutters. Upon seeing the string, Teresa, being careful to keep her face hidden, would enter the unlocked home. Sometimes Key would sit in a park bench in front of the Sickles' home, waving a handkerchief. That was the sign to Teresa that, well, he was ready. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. 
Dan Sickles seemed oblivious to the whole thing, but that all changed on the night of February 24, 1859. The Sickles were having a dinner party in their home. Later that evening, most of the crowd, including Teresa, took a carriage to the Willard Hotel to go dancing. Dan said he needed some air and would walk, meeting everybody there later. On his way, a messenger handed him a yellow envelope. Sickles stuffed the unopened envelope into his pocket. But later that evening, at the Willard Hotel, he took it out and opened it. The letter said, There is a fellow, I may say, for he is not a gentleman by any means, by the name of Philip Barton Key, and I believe the district attorney who rents a home of a Negro man by the name of Jonathan Gray, situated on 15th Street between K and L Streets, for no purpose than to meet your wife, Mrs. Sickles. He hangs a string out of a window as a signal to her that he is in, and leaves the door unfastened, and she walks in. And, sir, I do assure you that he has as much use for your wife as you do. And it was signed, Your Friend RPG, and to this day, no one's quite sure who RPG was. The following day, Daniel quickly went to the home addressed in the letter. Sure enough, he found that the house was rented by Barton Key and owned by a black man named Jonathan Gray. He asked a friend, George B. Wooldridge, to investigate, hoping that whoever wrote the mysterious letter was mistaken, that perhaps it was another woman. A day or so later, George returned and said, Dan, I've got some bad news for you. Before George finished, Dan began to cry and flung himself against the wall, bursting in convulsions of sobbing. It took a half hour before he stopped. Later that night, he confronted Teresa, saying, Where were you last Wednesday afternoon? When she tried to say something about shopping, he yelled, Weren't you at the house on 15th Street with Barton Key? She dropped her head, not saying anything. So he hollered, Were you? Tell me! She fell to the floor, fainting. After she recovered, she admitted everything, all the time weeping with occasional pleading. Sickles made her write out the whole confession on paper in front of witnesses. She began, I've been to the house on 15th Street with Mr. Key. How many times? I don't know. And later she wrote, I did what is usual for a wicked woman to do. The letter's pretty long, I won't read the whole thing here, but there's an amazing amount of detail in the letter. Perhaps the worst part was when she admitted that they had sex in the Sickles' house, in the bed that Dan and Teresa slept. She finished by saying, This is a true statement, written by myself without any inducement held out by Mr. Sickles to forgive or reward, and without any menace from him. This I have written with my own bedroom door open and my maid and child in the adjoining room at half past eight o'clock in the evening. She signed it with her maiden name, Teresa Beggioli. That night, Dan slept in their bed while Teresa slept on the floor in her daughter's room. Bridget Duffy, the housemaid, would testify later that she heard sobbing coming from each room. The next day, Dan called upon two people to help him with the situation. Sam Buttersworth, a lawyer, known as what would be called today a spin doctor, and congressional clerk George B. Woolridge. Woolridge arrived first. Dan wouldn't sit in a room for very long. He would leave, go upstairs, then come back, sobbing constantly. Sickles showed Woolridge the letter and said, I am a dishonored and ruined man. I cannot look you in the eye. Later, after he apologized for his behavior, he said, What shall I do? What shall I do? 
when Butterworth came, a plan was formed. Sickles should send his wife to her mother's in New York. Her leaving wouldn't be suspicious because the end of the season was coming. Dan could take a trip to Europe, away from the press, while a separation was arranged. But Sickles said, My friends, I would gladly pursue this course, but so abandoned, so reckless have Key and my wife been, that all the Negroes in the neighborhood, and I dare say how many other persons, know all the circumstances. Later that day, Barton Key was hanging out in front of the Sickles' home, trying to get Teresa's attention. He had been seen more than once passing in front of the house, displaying the handkerchief as he strolled along. For over two hours, he would come and go, trying to get the attention of his lover. The Sickles' dog spotted Key and ran out to greet him. Barton Key pretended to play with the dog, still waving his handkerchief as he did so. Finally, Dan Sickles, looking out of the window, saw Key and said, The villain has just passed my house. Then he cried, My God, this is horrible! Both Butterworth and Woolridge tried to calm him. Eventually, they both left. Butterworth ran into Barton Key outside the house. Keys greeted him by saying, What a fine day we have! And after a bit of polite conversation, Butterworth said he had to go, but it was then he saw Sickles walking up. Sickles yelled, Key, you scoundrel! You have dishonored my house! You must die! Key reached in his pocket, apparently looking for a gun, but unfortunately he had just changed his coat. He took a step forward towards Sickle. It was then that Sickles produced a gun, a Colt revolver, from his coat pocket. He fired. The bullet just grazed Key's hand. Sickles aimed the gun again. Keys leaped forward and the two began to struggle, the weapon falling to the ground. Dan Sickles finally pulled himself free and pulled a derringer from his pocket. Key backed away and cried, Don't shoot me! Reaching into his own pocket, Key produced his own weapon, a pair of opera glasses, and threw him towards Sickle. Sickles then shot, this time striking Key in the upper leg just under the groin. With at least seven people watching, Key yelled, I'm shot! And he stumbled backwards to lean on a tree and then slowly slid down to the pavement. Sickles kept yelling about being dishonored and such. The shot wasn't fatal, and, and by now there was no danger of Key fighting back. Sickles could have stopped and considered the debt paid, but Sickles wasn't done. Witnesses heard Key cry, Don't shoot me! Murder! Murder! Sickles held the gun close to Key and pulled the trigger. It didn't fire. He cocked the weapon again, placed it in front of Key's chest, and tried again. This time it did fire. Blood began to flow. This was enough to finish Key, but it wasn't enough for Sickles. He put the gun to Key's temple and again pulled the trigger. The weapon failed once again. A man ran up and pulled Sickles away. A moment later, Sickles said, Is the scoundrel dead? And then he looked at the man to sort of justify his actions by saying, he violated my bed. Daniel Stickles turned himself in and confessed to the killing. He asked his lawyers not to make any attempt to get him out on bail. Dan Stickles, being rich and a friend of the president, was able to get a dream team of lawyers to represent him. But the whole time, Stickles never showed a bit of remorse for his actions. In an interview from his jail cell, he said, he has dishonored me, and we could not live together on the same planet. This was another trial of the century. It was the talk of the country, front-page news in all the papers. 
For Teresa, still in grief, shame, and sorrow, she traveled to New York with her child to be with her mother. For the Sickles defense team, the strategy was simple. The violation of his wife caused Dan Sickles to go temporarily insane. His plea of temporary insanity was the first ever used in the United States. Insanity had been used before, but never the idea of temporary insanity. Now, this was a time when wives were almost considered property of their husbands, so many sympathized with Dan. The opinion was Key messed with Sickles' property and got what he deserved. It didn't matter at all that Dan Sickles was a known seducer of women. And it worked. The jury found Sickles innocent of the charges. Not only was he not guilty, but he was also able to keep his job as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. When the verdict was announced, there was a great cheer in the courtroom. Many, including members of the jury, wanted to shake Dan's hand. Sickles, however, showed no signs of relief or happiness. He almost appeared as if he was going to faint and calmly left the courthouse. In the streets, his supporters celebrated, parties were held, music was played. Papers soon wrote about Sickles as if he was a hero, saying that he saved all the ladies of Washington from the rogue named Key. Of course, not everybody agreed with the verdict. There were many that believed a cold-blooded killer had gotten away with murder. It was a time for Sickles to keep out of the public eye for a while, to keep a low profile until things calmed down. But Dan traveled to New York and began seeing his wife, Teresa, once again. On July 12, 1859, three and a half months after the acquittal, the New York Herald printed a story that said, Mr. Sickles and his wife to live together again in peace and mutual affection. Both parties have agreed to this step, and it is said that their love is greater than ever. And just like that, the public turned to Nan Sickles. The killing of Barton Key could be understood, but to forgive a cheating wife? That was unthinkable. The public was outraged. For those that were against Sickles, this just confirmed what they already believed. But now his supporters were turning on him. How dare he forgive the woman that cheated on him? Many thought this was done at the request of his lawyers, but Dan wrote an article in the Herald explaining his actions. It began, My reconciliation with my wife was without consultation with any relatives, connections, friends, or advisors. He went on to say he rescued the mother of his child and that he wished for his private life to remain private. But the outcry was too great. He would stay in office until 1861, but there was no chance that Sickles would be re-elected once again. But in 1961, Dan would find another cause to fight for, and that was the American Civil War. The crux of the defense was temporary insanity. They said it was possible under the law for a person to be temporarily incapable of knowing right from wrong. And after the crime is committed, all of a sudden they know right from wrong again. The jury acquitted Sickles. A little bit before I go. Everything about this just seems so wrong. Dan kills a man for having sex with his wife, though he's been having sex with other women at the time, and he becomes a hero? Then the public turns on him because he forgives his wife? I know, I know, it was a different time, but that doesn't make it right, right? I'm sure at the time, Washington was a boys club and all that. And we're finding from recent events that this boys club attitude is still with us today, unfortunately. 
Anyway, in two weeks I'll be doing another Dan Sickles adventure as he becomes a general in the Civil War. I'm hoping to get Gordon Fry's help on that. Gordon, if you're listening, I need to understand in a simple way just what Sickles did at Gettysburg that was so controversial. And one last thing. The biggest problem I had in recording today's podcast was the temptation to call him Stickles. I don't know why, but I had to go back and re-record his name a couple of times because I made that mistake. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank everybody for listening. You know, it takes money to produce this podcast. If you've got a few coins and can help, that would be wonderful. You can do this by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. Hey, and tell your friends about the show, won't you? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. You're encouraged to suggest stories using any of these platforms. And links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode can be found at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. Again, you can find the link for this on the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank the Fries one more time for doing last episode. To my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, stay healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks with more Daniel Sickles.